I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue if you dare. This week, it's double, double, toil and trouble, as Daniel and Claude from the Cannonball combine with Ben Jacobs from the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast to concoct a troubling witch's brew concerning the works of H.P. Lovecraft, his contributions to horror writing, and his toxic personality that is sure to make your cauldron bubble. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss since 2013 Bombas has donated over 100 million socks underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness if we counted those on air this ad would last over 1157 days but if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible it would take just a few clicks because every time you make a purchase Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The Cannonball. It's a Cannonball Agoraphobia crossover event. Uh, this is a sort of special Halloween episode where we, meaning Daniel and I, are going to be talking to Ben Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia about the works of his beloved author and maybe Daniel's beloved author, maybe not um, my favorite <laughs> author, uh, I would, H.P. I would Lovecraft. say I, I'm, I'm beloved of the, of the genre he is writing in. And so I have to respect the guy, and I enjoy some of his. Uh, uh, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to stop hemming and hawing. I do enjoy Lovecraft. I'm coming out and staking out the claim, but we'll discover why uh, that can be contentious or not contentious. I'm yeah, sorry. He, I'm, we're already. I've already just stepped in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's difficult to talk about uh, authors who we admire to some capacity, but whose works. Uh, I guess are problematic in some way. Um, I'm a little bit more on the problematic end. I think Daniel, uh, you find some of it uh, a little bit more appealing and Ben, you're, you're whole hog. Yeah. Well, that makes it sound like you're excusing some of this. (laughs) No, that's not it. But, but you really are a a fan of Lovecraft. I, I really am a fan of Lovecraft despite his being a, problematic person yeah. uh, to say the least <laughs> yeah uh, problematic we'll... person problematic author problematic yeah. <laughs> existence <laughs> i guess it's all in there but no i i just didn't want you to think that i'm picking on you uh or or picking on any lovecraft fans like right from the start um it's just this is kind of a fascinating moment because we have this author who uh is a major horror author but one who's uh I guess works are extraordinarily contentious. And what's weird is he's probably, you know, a hundred years after his death or so, probably at the peak of his popularity, and yet, um, you know, probably at his most vulnerable. <laughs> well, I would say, yeah, yeah. yeah kind of at the most, um, the most. And what's interesting, though, is he was always at a remove from the main, even the mainstream of racism of his day. Yeah. Uh, yes. So there's something like maybe that has some. Maybe that's the secret to his sticking power. It's like everyone knew he was this awful crank well, the entire... I don't know. It's real easy to slip right in here now into uh, talking about all this stuff. So let's, uh, maybe we should... Uh, no, that's true. That's true. Get, We're doing a show. Yeah, we should, we started doing yeah. a show. Um, so I guess before we really jump out, though, um, let's see. Claude was going to give us uh, just a couple... For anyone who doesn't know Lovecraft or isn't super familiar with the actual stories that he wrote, they just know maybe through sort of pop cultural osmosis, um, Claude's going to relate the uh, the plots of a couple of his most famous and sort of most essential stories. But before we got to that, uh, Ben... I want you to tell the Cannonball audience what uh, what you do over at uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia. Well, it has nothing to do with literature or horror writing or Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> um, my 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 show Wittenberg to Westphalia is about theoretically the wars of the Protestant Reformation, but I'm taking a really really deep dive into the causes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I've started basically with the fall of the Roman Empire, <laughs> and I'm working my way up. I've taken a break at the year 1000 to explore the social context of Europe in the Middle Ages, and I'm about through all the scene setting there, and I'm going to start to move on in the next couple episodes. Um, it's been it's been four years, and I'm still going strong. That's fantastic, <laughs> so, and, yeah, and uh, I, uh, yeah. I I I will personally uh, attest to uh, very much enjoying 
uh, your approach to the material, Ben. Like, it's really... I guess when you, when you did first start the show and you started off with just a basic grounding in European geography, I knew this would be my kind of show. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we're really glad to have you on uh, talking, talking Lovecraft. And I guess uh, uh, to, to start us all off, Claude, please. All right, so we're to to prevent us from being overly abstract which uh, is really a problem when when talking about an author or work or a time period we decided to focus on two particular stories call of cthulhu and shadow over Innsmouth. Uh, for my money they really sort of are the maybe not the quintessential lovecraft but they've got some of those quintessential elements that make lovecraft lovecraft mm-hmm. and i i think daniel can talk to talk about those in a little bit but call of cthulhu is sort of the it's the mythos that gets spread throughout you know most of his works and it, it's structurally a pretty weird piece uh it, it begins with this narrator who inherits all of this material from his granduncle, who is a scholar at this local university. His grand- granduncle uh, knows ancient languages and ancient history. And the way he talks about him, it, it's or the way he writes about this this character, it seems sort of close to philology. He's a philologist. Uh, the narrator finds this box with clippings and all kinds of material uh, about this cult of Cthulhu. And that's where we get into the narrative of this local sculptor who had come to his granduncle because he was having these hallucinatory visions of this place that did not operate according to Euclidean geometry. Um, He has these horrible nightmares and he starts sculpting what he sees from those nightmares and things get worse and worse and worse until they reach a point of no return. He gets uh, extraordinarily ill and feverish and that's the culmination of all of his nightmarish material. And then once the fever breaks, everything's fine. He has no access to this material anymore and he goes about his day. Um, In the box is also the, the narrative of inspector lagrasse so the granduncle talks about meeting this other scholar who had met this inspector in new orleans who went to some uh i guess archaeologist conference because he had broken up this i guess set of horrible rites out in the everglades that were being practiced by a bunch of creole people that's going to be important i'm going to come back to that uh, who were sacrificing people to some kind of winged monstrosity. And this was the statue that they were sacrificing people to. So nobody can quite identify it. Nobody quite knows what it is, but it has a correspondence to the, the sculpture that the, the original neurotic sculptor had brought to the professor in the first place. And then we move on to the narrative of a Scandinavian sailor who had been, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's structurally, I, I find it structurally fascinating because it's sort of like these box narratives. This is something that I keep finding that Lovecraft comes back to. It's sort of like when we need information, we get some particular character who is the exposition or some yeah. weird kind of side narrative that does the exposition. So there's this narrative of the Scandinavian sailor who was out in the South Pacific with his crew, and then they got boarded by a group of pirates, uh, mixed-race pirates, I'll come back to that, uh, <laughs> who were 
um, practitioners of this Cthulhu cult. They have this horrible battle, but the white Scandinavian sailors, most likely due to genetic superiority, Lovecraft's idea is not mine, uh, manage to win the day. But they get stranded on this island that appears out of nowhere. Uh, the, the crew of sailors finds this gigantic structure on the island. They go into the structure. They find this giant uh, demon excrement monster floating at the bottom who somehow manages to rise up with a huge noxious gas and chase them out to sea. Uh, the sailors board the ship. Only two of them are left. And instead of trying to get away from this giant excrement monster, they go full speed up head right through it, ram it, disperse it, and in this sort of sewage-like moment, it seems to pull itself back together. And that's where uh, they somehow manage to make it back to some kind of quote-unquote civilization. And then the Scandinavian sailor is mysteriously killed when a box falls on him. Uh, the narrator <clears throat> realizes that all of this stuff signals that there is this cult of people who are trying to raise this dark god, Cthulhu, who has existed before, I guess, time existed. He's one of the dark ones, or the old ones, who live beyond space and time, who are sort of these primeval monsters that don't really care about humanity it's not that they're immoral they're just amoral and what the the worshipers of cthulhu want to do is call these old gods back to destroy all human kind i guess all of existence yeah, yeah basically <clears throat> yeah. so there you go uh that's call of cthulhu all right so then we read shadow over innsmouth and Again, Shadow Over Innsmouth has this weird kind of narrative structure. It begins almost at the end with uh, the feds raiding the town of Innsmouth. Uh, this takes place in the 20s, and the general idea given out is that Innsmouth had been this hub of bootlegging, and what this essentially was was shutting down all of these, uh, I guess, booze factories or covert uh, alcohol activities and just demolishing everything. Um, we go from there to the narrator telling about how he managed to make contact with Innsmouth, and it was all innocent enough. He was on a vacation to do some archival research into his family bloodline. <clears throat> That's when he ended up in the backwoods of New England, and he gets about five to ten pages of exposition from this kindly local bus operator who tells him, uh, in true New England fashion, can't get there from here. <laughs> so he finds out you that... you got to go up to the tree where little Billy broke his arm three years ago, and then you'll go yeah, down it, to the red house. It really does... Down. <laughs> it really does get into that kind of uh, that kind of, I guess, depiction of place. Uh, but anyway, so he he finds out from this this bus operator that there is a bus that'll take him where he wants to go, but he has to stop the night in Innsmouth. And the the bus operator tells him all kinds of spooky hearsay about Innsmouth, and he decides on a lark. No, why not? Why not just go out there? 
Everyone in Innsmouth is cut off from civilization. They all have the same kind of features. There's, quote-unquote, an Innsmouth look. And they look vaguely fish-like. Uh, when he gets to Innsmouth, he realizes that it's kind of dead. There's no one there. There's nothing around. Everything is sort of, like, burnt out and eerie and creepy. He finds uh, a local kid who... Well, he's not a local. He's a kid from a couple towns over, but he works in the grocery store uh, just because he needs the money. And he tells him that if he wants to know anything about Innsmouth, then he should find the town drunk. So the narrator goes and finds the town drunk, gets him boozed up, and then we get another 20 pages of backstory and exposition about how the, the sort of founding father of the town was this captain who had gone out to the South Pacific. It's always the South Pacific. Yeah, is it? <laughs> anyway, uh, he goes out to the South Pacific and gets involved in these fish demon worship rites uh, from this cult that exists on an island out there somewhere. He brings one of the local girls back and marries her, and that's the beginning of this whole development of, of fish people fish demon cult in Innsmouth, uh, they slowly sort of cut themselves off from civilization and start interbreeding with each other to create this half-human, half-fish hybrid demon existence, and everybody at a certain age begins to get the Innsmouth look, they become more fish than human, and then they go off to sea and dive underwater and live forever as fish demons. So the narrator, <clears throat> he doesn't know what to think because this is the town drunk talking, but when he gets back to the local inn, uh, he starts to get more and more creeped out because there are people in the room next door who appear to be trying to break in and their language is some kind of fishy guttural slobber. Uh, he gets out of the inn and starts running throughout the town and he's being chased by a whole horde of fish people. He hides out from the fish people, uh, makes his way back to the uh, couple towns over and that's when the narrator calls the feds. So the fed raid from the beginning was actually instigated by the narrator himself. Wow, he withheld that piece of information. All right, so... Can, can I just uh, say that this protagonist <laughs> deserves the Horror Story Award for being a logical, sane human being? <laughs> you know, right up until the end, when which you know, Claude hasn't gotten to yet. But it's well, just like, you, you read this and you just go, why doesn't everybody in every horror movie do that? Thank you. People well, are trying to break into your room in the creepy house. Don't, like, arm yourself. Get out the window! Yeah. <laughs> so... He does a little, he, he ends up doing some more genealogical research and finds he's related to the Marsh family, which were the, the original people who brought the fish people back. He finds himself dreaming of underwater kingdoms and finding that he's growing gills in his neck. Uh, soon he discovers to his horror that he is one of the fish people. He's to be one of the crown princes of the fish people. And uh, that's when he devolves into madness. Yes. So that's it. All right. The the thing that both of these have in contact uh, in in common really is this weird narrative structure. I mean, they're genre wise. I know Daniel's going to talk about the the context for the weird, mm -hmm. but genre wise, these are both kinds of detective fiction uh, playing on, on the tropes of detection but also playing on that trope in detective fiction of the, the, the protagonist somehow also being 
the perpetrator of the crime. Mm, yeah. Uh, involved in some way, involved in some capacity. The narrator in Call of Cthulhu is involved to the capacity that just knowing about the cult is one step closer to getting the cult to destroy you or getting the cult to get what it wants. Mm -hmm. And in Shadow Over Innsmouth, the narrator finds that he himself is the monster. So it, it, I mean, you can take that back to Oedipus. The detective is looking for himself. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, Oedipus is the, the, I think Ross MacDonald did an essay on it. Oedipus is kind of like the foundation of, detective fiction yeah so both of them share that aspect and there's some of that structural weirdness i i I don't know if this was klutzy writing or if lovecraft was trying to do something with the genre but there always is this kind of all right i must find some kind of source who just takes over the narration and (laughs) spills everything uh it's kind of this fascinating way of doing it Mm -hmm. these stories within stories within stories uh you know i think borges would have made more out of that but (laughs) it it is kind of interesting to see uh lovecraft doing that so i I would i just want to interrupt real quick and just say that you you just said a piece of what makes lovecraft one of my favorites it is I don't know whether he did it on purpose or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well that, there yeah. are parts that I know he did on purpose. Right. But, and those are probably the worst parts. Maybe. But um, But we'll, we'll get to that. We'll yeah. get to that. Yeah. But, but that, that's always the question with Lovecraft. Is yeah. How much do you do on purpose? Because some of this is ridiculously inept and makes no sense. Yeah. And sort yeah. of seems like he backfilled it in. But then some of it, yeah, is picking from... You know, classical literature with metatextural, you know, uh, meta narratives, framing devices, and then some of it's picking from detective fiction, and then some of it's just, uh, and then I'll do a flashback to my childhood, I guess. Right. So yeah, it's flashbacks within flashbacks and all kinds of weird stuff. All right. So Daniel, mm-hmm. with all right, Lovecraft is often positioned as being a weird writer. Yeah. I mean, what does that mean? Right. So. Typically, you see Lovecraft either classified as horror or as what's called weird fiction. And unless you are, honestly, unless you're pretty deep in the weeds with, uh, I guess, what we might call the uh, the, the fantastical literatures, um, you probably not have going to heard the term weird fiction. But it is it's it's a genre. It's a sort of a term of art for a genre. And it's a bit of a back formation. I'm not entirely sure that anyone during the heyday of weird fiction thought of themselves as being a weird fiction writer. Um, I really feel that's more of a back formation, but this heyday was in the 1920s and 30s. And this was a style of short story that was published typically in the low quality pulp magazines, which were huge at the time. This was really, uh, this was a time in American fiction, at least where what we might call genre fiction was very much relegated to this kind of uh, the gutter of the of the pulp magazine. This would have been like a weekly or mo- well, usually monthly, um, cheap printed on cheap paper, which is why it's called pulp, and generally considered disposable. And so the in a in a way almost the uh, the fact that scholarship has even emerged around a lot of these genres and a lot of these writers is itself a kind of almost like found art. I don't know. Um, but anyway, well, I guess there's Dickensian uh, antecedent for the kind of just the hack writer churning out stuff and it actually getting a lot of critical attention. But in, this, in specific, we're talking specifically about, um, this is a genre that emerged almost entirely out of one publication called Weird Tales. 
So, mm. so this was a uh, this was a pulp magazine called Weird Tales. It began publication in 1924 um, out of Chicago uh, in a publishing house called Rural Publications. So, if anybody wants to get uh, <laughs> wants to get their third coast neurosis on, there you go. Um, but and it was itself uh, it was publishing stories. This was in the 20s and 30s. This was a time when what we might call the genre boundaries were not very. It was a very fluid time. Uh, mm-hmm. So this was really. This was also around the same time that Hugo Gernsback started up his um, uh, astounding stories. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, not astounding, okay. not astounding, amazing stories. I'm sorry, <clears throat> astounding would come later. That's Joseph W. Campbell, and that's the foundation of hard science fiction. But we won't get into that. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, guys. I, just, I love the shit. Um, so, uh, but this was a very. This was a time when the kind of there was uh, there was an appetite for like fantastical literature. But it wasn't really all that firmly in place, like what was fair game for what genre or what have you. So Weird Tales was uh, this magazine that published what we today would call things like uh, space opera. Um, this like, you know, grand, uh, grand scale, planet hopping science fiction romance pioneered by an Edmund Hamilton. And he was one of their most published authors. This also published, and I thought this was, uh, this was pretty great, their most, by far, by far the most the biggest star that Weird Tales had who published regularly was a guy named Seabury Quinn and he mm-hmm. did these stories um, it was an inspector Jules de Grandin occult detective basically basically <laughs> this was it was like X-Files 1932 it's just it's phenomenal to like just read the synopses of these things uh, honestly like Seabury Quinn is like for such a pillar of the Weird Tales magazine which is itself such a legend He's really fallen out of favor. Nobody really reads him anymore. Nobody really cares about him anymore. His sort of second bananas are the guys that we talk about. Guys like Lovecraft. Guys like Robert E. Howard mm-hmm. of the Conan the Barbarian stories. Guys like Clark Ashton Smith, who is, for my money, the uh, I think the vastly superior practitioner of weird fiction um, to compared to Lovecraft. Uh, but um, so, but yeah, Seabury Quinn was by far their. He's the guy who made like paid the bills around there. Um, writing stories about like this occult detective who finds out that the murders were committed by a werewolf or a vampire, you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but anyway, so but all these stories had in common their kind of antecedents in earlier forms of uh, fantastical literature, like you know we're all familiar with like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, and that was this genre called scientific romance. It's not quite science fiction as we know it, and it had fallen out of favor by the teens and twenties, even though uh, I guess Verne. I don't think Byrne was publishing anymore, but Wells was still publishing at the time. But his his great classics like uh, The Invisible Man and uh, War of the Worlds, um, those were from kind of the late 19th century. By this time, uh, you saw a kind of an upswing in uh, what were called lost race stories. And the lost race story mm-hmm. is basically like any time you've like read a story about uh, an underground civilization that threatens humankind, that's a lost race story. Or they can also be um, they can also be situated in remote places on the planet Earth. So you might have, uh, honestly, like Gorilla City in the DC Comics universe is basically a lost race story. Um, it's a story well, yeah. where there's, there's a powerful civilization hidden away somewhere that can threaten the rest of us. Um, I mean, it's worth saying that the entire early comic book genre was basically just lifting stories out of the pulp. Oh, universe. totally, totally. Um, just like, so the entire comic book genre as we understand it is is basically based on pulp novel stories recycled yeah absolutely um and another big well that uh the 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 writers of weird tales would draw on 
was the, the Theosophy movement. Um, and this was a kind of a movement in occultism and spiritualism in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And it really gained a lot of ground. There were Theosophy societies in every major city and most minor cities uh, all across uh, America and uh, Europe and even in India. Um, which, well, honestly, they were kind of cribbing half-baked Hinduism for most for a lot of their stuff, but they still opened up schools in India. Um, yeah. But but I think one of the key elements that fed into the weird fiction genre in Lovecraft, especially that was present in Theosophy, was the idea that humankind has a very very deep history, not an evolutionary deep history as we understand it, but a deep history of forgotten knowledge and forgotten civilizations and preceding civilizations that were superior in some ways and very different and that this history was accessible through occultism. Um, that was a huge, right. huge influence on a lot of these stories as well. And of course, there's just the pulps in general. You know, these were, che these were cheap. These were meant to be turned out. These were, you know, your editor would be slamming on the desk saying like, you know, I don't care if it's, if it's art. Just give me, you know, 5,000 words by Thursday. Uh, so there was a great deal. And I think honestly, this feeds into some of the structural elements that Claude was talking about yeah. that I think when Lovecraft is doing it unintentionally, I think he's writing to a, to a deadline or he's like, he's writing yeah. to basically, he's writing to churn it out. And like, how can I get this idea that's in my head out? Oh, I know. I'll have the town drunk explain it. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, so. Uh, well, it's also. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's also really fascinating because there, there's a lot of, of Lovecraft that taps into the same kinds of social anxieties that the modernists were, were responding to. Mm -hmm. Now he is definitively anti-modern. Yeah, uh, that's the sort of going throughout. But there, there's this weird kind of aspect of the modernists that could often be extraordinarily revanchist. I mean, the the most well known, I guess, would be Ezra Pound and yeah, yeah. the sort of fascist wing of modernism. But even well, T. S. Eliot was a sort of staunch conservative through, I guess, the midpoint of well, pretty early in his career and all the way throughout. Um, Lovecraft is is often with the cosmic horror tapping into those same kind of social anxieties. The the modern era or, or the early 20th century was one where there was rapid, unprecedented technological, social, political, economic, you name it, change. Mm -hmm. And there was this constant sense of being... Um, separated from the past or separated from any kind of foundation that could guide you into understanding the moment. Mm -hmm. and, and that's sort of correspondent with this constant anxiety he has about the the meaninglessness of existence. Mm -hmm. The cosmological horror is basically one of um, sort of pessimistic nihilism. Yeah, I, th right? I think you're hitting on something uh, to, sorry to, to interrupt Claude, but like that, I think you're hitting on kind of a germ of a lot of these and the fact that a lot of these genres were not well defined at the time is because they're all emerging out of this sort of modernist anxiety. Yeah. And I think in the in, yeah. in the science fiction route that eventually emerges, it's a, an attempt to master modernism. And it's 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 yeah. And in fantasy, it's a reaction to sort of reject it or pretend that it's not there, perhaps, or at least to try to yeah. recover values that are not possible. And with the Lovecraft well, vein, with the weird fiction vein, or at least the Lovecraftian weird fiction vein, it's it's utter nihilism in the face of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, well, it's like um, he does read modernism as a version of decadence. Mm -hmm. Like when uh, the sculptor is producing artworks to try to capture this primeval chaos, they the, the description he has sounds like, you know, Picasso. Yeah. 
yeah. more or less. So it's it's reactive to that, and I, I think you're absolutely right that when faced with that, it's okay. Shut down the end. Nothing. We have degenerated. We'll get into his racial politics mm-hmm. in a bit, but this very idea of the degeneration of humanity and the end of humanity is very much connected to that pessimism, but also connected to his racial politics. Yeah. And I think like, I can't, and, you can't well, not see it. And I think, well, but oh, sorry, go ahead then. That's maybe a conversation for later. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, I think like, uh, I, I think what might help us sort of approach all of this is learning, well, where, how did H.P. Lovecraft himself come to be writing these stories? Yes. Who is okay. this guy? Yeah, and that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, so I'll, I'll handle... So the the idea that was just said that I think is really important, that there was a ton of change happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to start there. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was born in 1890. Um, and that's pretty important because the 18, in 1893, basically, 1890, 1893, that's when it was declared, for what it's worth, that the American frontier was closed. That didn't really matter to Lovecraft. He's from New England. He's born in Providence, which mm-hmm. is where I live now. But that sort of gets, that helps <clears throat> us set sort of the frame of what's going on in the United States at that time. A huge amount of change. America's going from being this agrarian... Uh, frontier society that economy is geared towards developing the frontier to being a consumer-oriented society the way it is now. Uh, and the uh, entrepots of the East Coast are serving that need. So that that's an important bit of background. Uh, Providence itself is a city that I like to tell people it never, recover, never really recovered from the war, by which I mean the Civil War. Um, it was uh, at one time an extremely wealthy city, uh, but it, its biggest peak uh, relative to the other cities was in arms manufacturing for the Civil War. And then after that, it, it still was a powerful and important center, but it was just dwarfed by its neighbors uh, and never re- always sort of was just kind of hanging on uh, after that. So um, when Lovecraft himself was born, uh, that's sort of the setting he's born into, this New England setting of economic mediocrity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Providence is a very old town. Uh, I Lovecraft's family was a very old family, but they weren't one of the wealthy ones. Uh, his father was a traveling salesman, and his uh, grandfather, his maternal grandfather, was also a traveling salesman. Uh, so the men in his life were absent, particularly so because his father ended up coming down with syphilis, uh, which... Uh, syphilis, if left untreated, drives you insane. So, uh, be safe, kids. Uh, and he ended up having a nervous breakdown when Lovecraft was three and getting sent to a mental asylum, uh, where he lingered for several years before dying. Hmm. Uh, of course, Lovecraft wasn't told as a kid that his father had syphilis, uh, and if he was ever told, he never, uh, he never told anyone else. Yeah. Uh, he, he would tell people that his father died of a nervous breakdown caused by overwork. Okay. Huh. Um, so, 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 yeah, the cover story was uh, just uh, marinated in Calvinist uh, work ideology. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, so that left him growing up with uh, his mother, her three sisters, 
uh, I'm sorry, his mother, her two sisters, his grandmother, and then his only real male role model as a child was his maternal grandfather, who then is a traveling salesman. So mostly he's only interacting with this guy via correspondence, via letters, which is important. Uh, that's his formative relationship. Uh, he was very sickly, um, and mostly lived getting doted on by these women, uh, hand and foot, and then, uh, and then occasionally his grandfather would come in to do things like cure him of being afraid of the dark by forcing him to walk repeatedly through dark rooms. So, <laughs> wow. not quite child abuse, yeah. but very Calvinist New England. <laughs> um, so... The, the family suffered from a gradually worsening financial situation, um, which then created more issues for him. Uh, he he did went to a prestigious high school uh, and had a group of friends who he he enjoyed spending time with. But you know he his family was having financial issues. He probably had health issues. There was stress involved he eventually had a nervous breakdown in his last year of high school, so he never really got his high school diploma directly. He eventually... I, there's some confusion as to whether he eventually got one. In any case, he never actually went on to college, um, which would, of course, be a problem for him in terms of his further career. He also had, of course, no practical skills. Because, <laughs> you right. know... Yeah. Uh, so... Um, but he did, he was very well educated, like, he, he consumed vast amounts of books, but he was an autodictat, um, he would go through the libraries around here in Providence, which are completely wonderful, um, the, the Protest, the, um, the Providence Athenaeum still exists, uh, you can get weddings there, it's Maybe. beautiful, absolutely yeah. beautiful building, yeah, um, and he would just hang out there all the time, he had a, you know, group of friends that he would hang out with there, sort of. Uh, he became an amateur journalist and actually, in that capacity, wrote polemics against people who would write for lowbrow publications for money, which is <laughs> <coughs> ironic. Oh, beautiful, yeah. His, his whole life is um, one giant cell phone, in a way. It, it Yeah, he, he's got this huge self-hate thing going yeah. on. Like, he loves being around people, but it clearly drains him. And then he'll self-isolate, and then need people, and it's, um, well, I'll get to that. Um, his, as he was sort of moving out into this amateur journalist world and starting to get some acclaim and, and meeting people and really be building a name for himself, his mother had a nervous breakdown and was committed to a hospital, uh, the same mental hospital where his father had been sent, uh, in which place she got some gallbladder surgery that went wrong and she died. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the fact that his father died of syphilis does raise the question about his mother having mental issues and dying in a mental hospital. But let's move on. Um, so, anyway, that, that is reportedly what happened. The fact is, though, that both of his parents died lingering deaths in but Butler Mental Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. Um, in his living memory. Uh, in his mother's case, anyway. In his memory. Um, so, at one of these amateur journalist conventions, he met Sonia Green, uh, and they got married. Uh, apparently, a very healthy relationship. 
Um, his uh, aunts objected to the relationship, but uh, in a sort of act of defiance, he got married to her. Uh, particularly, this was defiant because she was a Jewish woman, uh, and he mm. had written several... This is interest, an interesting point, because he'd written numerous polemics against the Jews yeah. uh, as a journalist, um, and some of his uh, fiction that he wrote as a kid made unkind comments about the Jews. Um, just cards on the table, I'm Jewish. Yeah. So, okay. Um, <laughs> right. So... I, I think that's why, I think that's one, uh, one of many reasons why your, your perspective as a Lovecraft fan, I think, is really fascinating that just, like... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. sorry, that perspective that you bring to it. But anyway, continue. Sure. Um, so, he, he got married to her, and she, you know, maybe it was because the aunts, which was his entire family, objected to her, uh, but her her account of it is that uh, she thought that he was being held back by his family um, and she wanted to move to New York, which they did, uh, and she, th- she said she was totally fine supporting him financially because she believed in him as a writer, she was totally supportive of him, um, she had a business, and they were going to move to New York, he was going to move into the literary scene in New York, where he would move past his provincial providence background and actually like move out into the world get past his background and you know flourish unfortunately financial issues sort of intervene again here because almost as soon as they moved to new york her business failed Hmm. she she was able to keep it going for a year or two and then it failed there were national financial problems um as well at the time um this whole period sort of 1885 to 19... Well, to 1945, to 1950, is just repeated booms and busts in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Punctuated by wars. And so that's very much the, the context that we're in. Uh, things for Lovecraft to look okay, and then the economy will flip up, and it'll be that much worse on the socioeconomic scale. So one of these things happen, she loses her business, she can't support him or them anymore. She gets a job opportunity out in Cincinnati. He gets a job opportunity in Chicago to be the editor at Weird Tales. Yeah, yeah. He he turns it down. She accepts the job in Cincinnati. So she moves to Cincinnati, and she's sending money back to him. Uh, and so he's moving... And the, part of the reason he didn't move to Chicago is he's in New York, in Manhattan. He's living this really exciting life he's uh moving in these really exciting bohemian literary circles full of some big names that i don't remember um (laughs) but a number of them were jewish and none of them were homosexuals although he probably didn't know about that uh, because the vaguest mention of sex would set him sweating (laughs) um and so uh she moves to cincinnati but eventually they're they're you know the, the situation keeps getting worse. He's making, like, no money. Uh, so he has to move to Red Hook in Brooklyn, which is a very working-class part of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, a part of, you know, New York um, at the time, uh, full of, uh, you know, that's where all the bootlegging was happening, uh, all the organized crime. It's full of dock workers. It's probably very exciting, but it's also full of crime. And eventually the apartment is robbed. He loses everything. Uh, he hangs on for like a couple more months and then basically heads back to Providence where 
you know, they have, up at this point, lived apart for a couple of years. He divorces Sonia, uh, but he, he tells her that he's agreed to the divorce, but he never actually f- signs the papers, which she doesn't <laughs> find out about until she tries to get remarried. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he spends another ten years living in Providence, um, living off basically whatever he could get from writing and a tragically dwindling inheritance. Uh, basically, he survives by not spending money, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, lives this extremely frugal existence, Basically, only uh, he gets his entertainment by going to the Athenaeum, um, and he eventually contracted colon cancer and suffered this very long, slow, lingering death. Um, a couple things to to just highlight here, because um, I, I didn't quite get it to it in the narrative. Mm-hmm. His biggest he had a couple times in his life where he had real strong social networks. But they were they're sort of these brief periods, apparently in high school, and then when he was for a couple of years when he was living in Manhattan, he ser- seems to have sort of lost all of it when he went to Brooklyn because um, he was embarrassed by his financial situation and stressed out and and stuff. But he maintained this really really lively correspondence to the point that uh, cataloging and maintaining his volume like there's three thousand volumes of his letters, something like wow, like, like there's a whole. Yeah academic discipline just to organizing, collating, and scanning these things. Um, and uh, so he clearly appreciated the you know contact with his fellow human beings, but he never really had periods where he really did it energetically for a very long time. Yeah. It, it clearly drained him. Um, he clearly had some sort of depression, I think. Um, it's hard to really diagnose someone or, you know, call it a social anxiety kind of thing or something. Uh, I don't want to armchair diagnose the guy. Uh, it's not useful for anybody, but he had, he had some sort of chronic illness mm-hmm. of the mental variety, probably that was keeping him from interacting with people, uh, long term. but he clearly enjoyed it. He mostly got it through correspondence. Um, and then the one thing that I started out with that I, I should have mentioned more then. So, right, his main male role model was his grandfather, who was 70 when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- we're talking in the 18, you know, 1890s to his father died when, his grandfather died when Lovecraft was like 10-ish, I, I think. So this is the main formative influence on Lovecraft. He, you know, started reading and writing when he was three and mostly interacted through his grandfather through letters and stu- and books and stuff. So his main formative influence was a 70-year-old man in the 1890s. Lovecraft <laughs> writes <laughs> and has the opinions of a person who came of age intellectually in 1840. Yeah, yeah. That is I'm going to just suggest that and put that on the table. So hmm. all right. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I mean it's you know it's weird because yeah, that's true. And at the same time, he's, I mean, he's also clearly responding to other things that are operant in the culture, you know? So, like, you know, I just don't want to dismiss his white supremacist uh, outlook. And it it is white supremacist. That's exactly what it is. I don't want to dismiss that as being sort of a holdover necessarily from one personal relationship because it did... Uh, 
correspond to a whole discourse that was happening in the culture. Sure. I mean, you know, it, 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 um, I, I would say, well, this is another thing that we, we probably want to come back to, but. Well, it's, you know, Birth of a Nation yeah. brought back the whole idea of, I guess, winning the South over. It brought back the Klan. It literally brought back yeah. the Klan. Yeah. Well, this was. That's, that's the same time period in which uh, Lovecraft is writing. Yeah. That's the, the, the same moment. Mm-hmm. These are the, the ideas that were in the air as well. So, sure. you know, yeah. I, I'm not trying to dismiss what you just said, but I'm also. Like, I'm curious why that moment would allow for that stuff to come back. There's some other... He he was reacting to a lot of stuff in the culture. He also comes off... And this is somewhat splitting hairs, but... um, Like, I don't care what kind of bigot he was. He was clearly a bigot. Yeah. Um, But he comes off... If you when you read in detail as more of an elitist bigot than necessarily a genie gene, gene, genetic based bigot, sure. because uh, he it changes his opinions when he gets in contact with people. Yeah, there's, but it's in the work. It's white supremacist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, in the work, it is white supremacist. Totally. It's it's okay. The, the horrors the 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 horrors in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, do not come from indigenous races or ne- or ethnicities. The horrors come from the mixing of races. Right. Everyone involved in the Cthulhu cult is mixed race, and he draws attention to that. That's one of the things that I'm saying is uh, that's intentional. Yeah. That, I mean, uh, he, that's uh, not accidental. That is absolutely intentional. And the the horror aspects of his writing is di- are directly connected to this white supremacist view. Yeah. I, so, whatever his personal his personal opinions were in the work itself it's it's clearly white supremacist. I'll say that yeah. I agree. Uh, I will just say that for him he would have these opinions and then he'd walk them back as he gained experience with other people. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, he he was an anti-Semite till he met his wife, and then he excused it to people by saying she was well assimilated. Which right, is, right. So and it, still, it still works in that but, like that kind of like wasp supremacist uh, uh, framework there. But I, but I take your I take your meaning, Ben. Like it's a like a kind of um, uh, well, you know, he, he's he's a poster, right? He's an internet poster, and he's he's exactly. he's, he's throwing hard on the forums. But then when you actually see him in person, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's like, oh, well, you know, I, I guess they're not a mud person, you know. Yeah, um, like, and, when he gets outside his, his comfort zone and he meets people and has to treat them like human beings, all of a sudden he realizes that, well, yeah, actually they are human beings. And it's, but, and, and I think and, what's, and what's interesting, ex- oh, but I think what's interesting is that his, his, you know, he'll always revert to that kind of deep set, you know, however it was inculcated. And it comes out in his art, yeah. that deep set sense of unease with this mixing with different peoples. And I, I th- another thing, like Claude mentioned, uh, you know, Birth of a Nation, the resurgence of the Klan. This was also uh, the time of uh, basically the invention of illegal immigration as we know it, uh, yeah, yeah, based yeah. in scientific assessment, pseudoscientific assessment. Uh, this was the time yes. of the, the uh, Immigration Acts of 1924 that began the quota system. Where there would be, right. you could only let in a certain amount of people a year, and the, the Congress like drew up the law. Actually, has like a table of allowing this number of people from these 
countries and areas that specifically maps to the pseudoscientific, you know, skull caliper uh, race science yeah. of the time. Philology. Right, right, right. Yeah. And that yeah. kind of, which adds a kind of like, you know, there was there was a, this, this was a moment, this was also the moment of the eugenics movement. There was this, this moment yes. of yeah. um, this uh, concern, this deep set concern about um, where, you know, where does, where does human flourishing come from? And these people are so glommed onto, bol- bolting on the their inherited racism onto this, you know, pseudoscientific approach. Well, it's, well that's it's, what it seems to be to be always operating is that there's this kind of Spanglerian decline of the West pessimism in Lovecraft mm-hmm. that he wants to link to this kind of despair at the nothingness of the universe. I mean, this is also the moment where. Uh, physics is pushing beyond the immediately observable and getting into the fantastic and strange itself right, so yeah. that you can't even wrap your mind around how the universe operates. I mean, the, yeah. the, the Einsteinian universe is, is chaotic. It's, and specifically um, called out by him as chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so that's, I mean, he wants to link, he wants to link these things to this kind of scientific discourse, but when it comes down to the actual horror... Um, it, it it always is the degeneracy of the white race. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, again and again and again. Shadow over Innsmouth strikes me as a, a kind of parable about what happens when you, I guess, have children with someone who is racially other. <laughs> and, it, like, that is, like, again and again, I can't look at this stuff and not see that. Well, I think... It's uh, a persistent aspect of his writing. Yeah, there's 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 one story in particular, and I, I cannot remember the exact title of it, um, but, it, it, Claude, I was reminded when you talked about the that sort of tradition in detective genre writing, where it turns out that the, the detective is somehow instrumental in, in the crime itself. Uh... Where right. there was one particular story, and and Ben Ben would probably know actually, but the with the the big reveal, the big horrible reveal uh, for this man who's researching his family history, and he's also sort of observing the stuffed ape collection that his explorer grandfather or father has assembled or whatever, or some kind of relative. Anyway, it turns out that he himself is the product of interspecies copulation <laughs> between right, apes yeah, yeah, and right. men. And that's like a, the horror that drives him insane and stuff, and and that's. But yeah, I think that ties that that ties into a neat little bow. These two trends of like the detective who was yeah. himself part of the crime and also this this uh, white racial panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's okay. So why does all right, Daniel? I'm going to throw this back to you yeah. though. Why has Lovecraft taken off? Like, what has been the posthumous career? Right. Uh, why is this anti Semitic he... racist freak? <laughs> yeah, how how did who this how basically this... died in poverty unloved and, uh, by anyone? Yeah. How do yeah, how how like, the heck what? do we know who this guy's name is? Um well it comes back to one of his weird tales colleagues, basically. Like, I mean it really does go back to one guy, a guy named August Durleth, who had been actually called out in a couple of uh Lovecraft stories as uh I believe like Comte de Let or something like there's a there's a sort of incidental character whose name is a kind of joke on August's you know August Durleth's name. So but August Durleth was again one of these kind of one of the tent poles of weird tales. He published a lot of stuff in weird tales. Um 
And but he was also an, an admirer of Lovecraft and a frequent correspondent. And this was kind of he was part of a circle of correspondence with uh, these guys like uh, well I mentioned Robert E. Howard of Conan the Barbarian fame and Clark Action Smith. Um, they corresponded a lot with one another. They shared a lot of ideas. They called each other out in their stories and stuff. And August Derleth was kind of part of that circle. So when H.P. Lovecraft died, uh, August ended up with a number of his, or at least he claimed to end up with a number yeah. of his papers uh, and kind of his papers and notes, his outlines for stories. And so for the first few years after Lovecraft died, August Derleth would publish stories that he had written based off those purported notes and credit them to August Derleth and H.P. Lovecraft. And this was apparently like really frowned upon at the time. And I, I didn't really dig too much into the controversy, but people basically assumed like August Derleth was passing off his own work under the name of the more, at the time, the more famous H.P. Lovecraft, uh, or at least the more respected, like would get you published in, in the reconstituted Weird Tales, because it actually, the Weird Tales of the 1950s was a different magazine that had basically been rebooted. Um, but it did lead to Sukai, and August Left had his own sort of modest success, and he would write. Um, I think one of the interesting aspects of Lovecraft's career and a lot of these guys is that there was the the Cthulhu mythos, as we mentioned. It was a shared, what we call today a shared universe. But that is a, a setting with characters and, and elements that writers, different writers would employ, and so as, which implying a kind, of, a kind of continuity among their different stories um and uh but august Derleth was kind of the he was the guy who kind of catalyzed all that he really if there's anything close to a kind of canon of cthulhuism august Derleth is the guy who made it gel together um and he continued publishing he actually founded his own publishing house called arkham house uh that would continue to publish and republish H.P. Lovecraft stories and some of the other weird, weird tales guys. And interestingly, I thought this was very interesting about August Derleth, um, Arkham House also published a lot of really groundbreaking, envelope-pushing feminist science fiction. Uh, he was actually publishing, um, I think most famously, Joanna Russ, who uh, would um, end up publishing the Hugo Award-winning The Female Man, which is a really... It's just a stunning work of 1970s um, sort of new wave feminist science fiction that is a good example of how the doors were blown off of the whole golden age uh, uh, attitude by that time. Um, uh, but that's kind of the that's kind of the germ of how the sort of the torch of Lovecraft was kept born aloft. Um, so through the 70s, Lovecraft's reputation was kind of on the rise. He would appear in. Um, he would appear in uh, anthologies more. He would his you know reprinted stories would would sell on the kind of the news racks with all the rest of the you know the uh, the science fiction paperback crap which I dearly love and have a vast collection of myself. Um, but uh, I think probably what I think really here's here's my thesis and Ben you can push back on this. I feel like the reason why Lovecraft has survived and thrived and found as much what we might call viral success to this day is because he became implanted in the incipient nerd culture of role-playing games in the early 1980s. No, I think that's about... I think that's fairly accurate. Okay. And I thought this was interesting because I was doing a little bit of research because there, there was... So we all know Dungeons & Dragons, and that was kind of the, the granddaddy of them all. Um, and Dungeons & Dragons itself is a kind of... You, you might think of it as a, as a way to create, you know, sort of, uh, you know... Tolkien Xeroxed 50,000 times kinds of narratives with your friends <laughs> sitting around the table. 
Um, but that also, it, I mean, it, but it kicked off this trend of people coming up with rules to be able to, you and your friends could act out pastiches of an author's style with each other. You could create a collaborative fan fiction, basically. Uh, and Lovecraft's work got picked up in this all this, and with the publication of Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game beginning in 1981. Since then, it is still ongoing. It is an ongoing game system. It has run through a ton of editions, as you might expect, for a, what, 30-odd, uh, well, what you know, 37-year-old you know, game property. Um, but, uh, so I think by placing, by Lovecraft's mythos becoming part of that burgeoning role-playing game uh, community, which perpetuated itself in the kind of the comic book stores and the game stores and the early internet of its day, which became one of the kernels of what we today call nerd culture, which has become the, I would argue, the absolute dominant popular culture on the planet right now. Um, yeah, which, which is extremely odd, having lived through, having yeah. <laughs> having been a young nerd in the 90s. When do you, do you, What's amazing is I will tell people, there was a time when you couldn't buy Star Wars toys if you wanted to. They were, they were, they were nowhere. The people don't believe me. Anyway, um, but I think another, another uh, sort of uh, contributing element to the, the, the survival of Lovecraft as, as, a, as, an, as a person, a touchstone, um, belongs to the film Reanimator, by Stuart Gordon, directed by Stuart Gordon, released in 1985. Um, and this was a huge cult horror hit, and I think that helped keep Lovecraft in the realm of sort of what we would think of as horror, even though his, the stories themselves and his weird fiction touch on what we today consider science fiction elements or fantasy elements. Um, so Reanimator, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's gross. Um, it's a fun horror movie. Um, but it was based on a Lovecraft story simply because, the, as I understand the, the legend, the director, student Gordon, was tired of all the vampire movies and wanted to make a Frankenstein movie. But you couldn't really make a Frankenstein movie because everyone was tired of Frankenstein movies because everyone makes a Frankenstein movie. So he found some other kind of reanimated corpse story, which was one of Lovecraft's sort of better-known stories, uh, Herbert West Reanimator. Um, so I think the, I think the dual uh, lodging of Lovecraftism or sort of the Lovecraft style in the in, in the kind of germ of what became nerd culture, which really took off in the 2000s with the internet... Um, I think the credit belongs to the Call of Cthulhu RPG and the Reanimator uh, uh, film, which sort of lodged itself in those, the horror fan consciousness. And what's fascinating to me, anyway, is that Stuart Gordon, in order to read the story, it was out of print. He had to go to the to the Chicago Library archives, like the Chicago stacks, to yeah. find a copy of the story to read. So I think that's I think that's why it deserves some credit for keeping the keeping the flame alive here. But that's I think that's kind of a rough and ready um, history of how the flickering torch of a, an extremely racist weirdo from the twenties was kept alive this whole time. But this compelling it was what was compelling to a lot of people for various reasons that I think Ben can speak to uh, coming up here. Well, uh, but like yeah. it's it's but that's how that's how the flame was kept alive. But what led this? efflorescence like what when we talk about lovecraft today we talk about what we like about him what are we talking about <laughs> so we i'm gonna jump in and you know i want to fill in a couple things there oh please um, yeah n not in terms of lovecraft himself but in terms of the wider um culture i think you did a great job in nailing down the pulp culture side of the the transmission chain mm -hmm. uh and then on the modern side, you know, 
the Call of Cthulhu game, definitely. Leading into what I want to talk about, there was this rise of cult movies, uh, B-movies, um, and things that sort of... Um, proper, intellectual properties that consciously or their, that their fans enjoyed because they rejected the idea of high art. Sure, yeah. And so, the, the, you know, you can think of uh, Ed Wood, Devo, you know, uh, Cher, to a certain extent, you know, <laughs> kung fu movies. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a, you know, discussion around this, and I don't know how much it's been fleshed out uh, in, a, you know, in academic circles or anything, because I'm I'm not in any way. Well, I think uh, <laughs> I think honestly, like Claude, in in, in your, your study of canonicity, I think this touches very very closely upon it. Um, but again, <laughs> but again, we get, I, yeah. I guess, like you said so, in the chat, we don't have time for dissertations. <laughs> yeah, let, let me let me just real quick run through my notes here, sure, sure, uh, and then we can go nuts. <laughs> um, the, the the concepts I want to talk about are camp and kitsch. Which are sort of two sides of the same same coin, and the only difference, almost from a legal standpoint, is intention. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both over the top. They're melodramatic content. They completely fly in the face of good taste um, and what you might call mainstream aesthetics. Um, they may have some compelling core, some compelling, interesting narrative core. They may have something that they're trying to say, um, but the setting is just all over the place. Mm-hmm. In terms of camp, the setting is intentionally all over the place. The setting is part of the message, usually, in terms of camp. They're poking their finger up in the nose of mainstream society and saying, what you going to do about it? Yeah. So, you know, J- John Waters movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Devo, you know, very much getting up in your, your face and saying... You know, I eat filth. <laughs> um, <laughs> or as the, uh, I think the famous uh, divine line in one of those movies, like, "What are your political views?" And she replies, "Kill everyone now." <laughs> 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 so um, the flip side of that is kitsch, which is basically all those things except um, you. You are left wondering whether it was done through uh, intentional means or through failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because kitsch, the the transgression of mainstream aesthetics is often completely unintentional. It's done through incompetence. Uh, it's done through a lack of a budget. Uh, it, it's done because the person just doesn't, you know, just, I said incompetence. So um, kitsch things are like kung fu movies where there's a language barrier and a culture barrier. Um and uh, I mentioned Ed Wood, so you can also think of The Room, uh, <laughs> uh, movies like that. Um, uh, there's a great local institution, which if you're ever in the Northeast, I highly recommend checking out, called the Museum of Bad Art. It is located in front of a men's restroom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, these are the things that you'd call so bad they're good. You know, that kind of thing. So, um, Lovecraft for me is probably in the kitsch area. Yeah. Um, I like, I love his work 
his prose is beautiful. <laughs> it is extremely lush. Yeah. It sounds like a person who was 70 in, 18, in you know, 1890 wrote it. it and, that's, it's completely... and the thing has been, I think that's like, um, it, it's a matter for taste, but I think that's another reason why I have found his work compelling also. Like, it's a kind of... Yeah. It's a kind of writing that is not very common today, and is also and it's also itself extremely difficult to pull off without being just awful. And I, I would compare yeah. I would compare it to Have you ever read any Jack Vance? Have either of you read science fiction author Jack Vance? No. Okay. No. I'm no. Get, but oh, you two are getting care packages in the mail. Um, Sweet. <laughs> this is, I, I think he's a great example of uh, of lush done right. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, continue, Ben. No, no, a lot of the, the pulp authors had, a, a lot of them that I, I have read, I haven't read as many as I'd like, because I have this podcast, um, <laughs> I'm, I read nothing but books about witches being burned all the time. But, and I'm over anyway, here, I, I can't read nothing but great literature, it's awful. God damn it, it's awful. <laughs> Can I curse? I, <laughs> oh, anyway. no, yeah, go for it, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I uh, well, I, I yeah, I, I do, on the cannonball, so. Okay. Sweet, sweet. Um, I, I, I'm from New Jersey, so I spend my entire show trying to keep my New Jersey under control. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, his prose is, is but all the, all these, uh, you read two pulp novelists and they all have wildly different styles, which is, is, fa and none of them are right in terms of the mainstream at that time. Yeah. So I, I think that that itself is particularly fun. Um, but Lovecraft himself is ridiculously repetitive. All of his, you know, most of his stories end up with someone stumbling on something and going insane, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> He's got yeah. his own tropes. <laughs> uh, you know, he finds a toaster and he goes insane. <laughs> um, he's terrified of things that are taken for granted by, you know, modern society, like relativity theory, mi minorities, and lady parts. And, um, <laughs> you know, in, in general... His, the structure of his stories, as we've addressed, uh, often fails utterly in terms of being coherent. And you're you're left wondering: was that intentional? Was he doing some sort of, you know, meta narrative, or was, you know, is the fact that none of this makes sense part of the fact that the narrator is insane, or is it just that Lovecraft was kind of a hack <laughs> writing for a pulp <laughs> right. thing and he was just kind of like, ah, whatever, they're fine, I'll take it. Um, so, you know, I see him as definitely kitsch and I really enjoy him because I enjoy sitting there and trying to take apart how much of it was intentional given the fact that you really can't assume intentionality with Lovecraft in any way. <laughs> Um, cause he, you know, he, he wasn't incompetent. He was really well read, but there's just so much about him that, you know, he had a variety of mental health issues. He was extraordinarily sheltered. He basically was self-taught. So how much, you know, yes, he was well read, but what did he, what was it he was reading? Right, right. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah, so, it, it, so that's where that's I it. come from. And I just want to finish up by mentioning Poe's Law, which is something that's come off the internet, but oh, I think it's yeah. an important part of this conversation, which is that, for me, I appreciate Lovecraft because, you know, sarcastically, I think he's 
a pitiful story. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly don't look to him as an example for my politics. And, you know, I, I basically, I'm able personally to appreciate him because he was basically harmless. Because he died, you know, unloved and in poverty. Hmm. And, you know, he, he wrote a couple articles and op-eds that were probably not appreciated in local Providence politics, but in the grand scheme of things, with everything else that was going on in the 40s, like, th this guy wasn't exactly an opinion maker. Sure. Um, that said, as the popularity of Lovecraft expands, Poe's Law comes into effect, which essentially says that it's impossible to come up with a proposition that is obviously sarcasm in modern internet society because someone somewhere will take it seriously no matter how ridiculous or outrageous it might seem. Right. So, to me, saying that Lovecraft is, you know, not an example to follow because he's a racist and a misogynist and kind of a broken person, you know, is obvious. But there are people out there who may look at him as an example of a great racist writer who's just their kind of guy and yeah. that oh, makes me yeah, feel like are. I need to it's, take a shower. You're right, right. No, right. Yeah, there are. There there are. There there are sincere readings of him, uh, either in the racist vein or in that sort of um dark enlightenment vein that yeah. look at this as a kind of Nietzschean response to the void. I don't see that at all. I I honestly don't Okay, he he fast he he's kind of fascinating. Okay, as an academic, mm -hmm. because he's working so hard to to stress his credentials. Like, yes. I mean, that's one of the other weird things about Call of Cthulhu is that the the format of it, like the 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 genre structure of it, uh, is kind of like detective novel, but apparently for the really smart elite intelligence yes. um he makes all these stabs at academia but he so desperately he, wants to be part of it but yeah, you can yeah. tell from a mile away that this is not academic at all there's no part of this that that coheres to any kind of academic understanding yeah. so it's i mean it's it's it, he's showing that sort of autodidacticism but that's you know that's an interesting part of him, but overall, I, I don't know. I I find him so extraordinarily problematic, and the the writing is usually so turgid, and the stories are so repetitive that I I really don't see why it has a following. But I think your 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 sort of kitsch explanation mixed in with uh, what I think Daniel was talking about with the the ubiquity of these ideas. And the culture being spread out through means other than his writing itself. It's like yeah. Lovecraftian is more of a draw than the actual stories of Lovecraft. Yeah, in some absolutely. Well, and I, I say that's true. Yeah, and I think I think you're hitting on it there, Claude. And I guess this is where I'll say where I guess I'm left to. And the thing is, like Ben, I'm I'm very much a I'm very much a guy who appreciates some good kitsch. Like I am 100% right on board with you. Um, which is an appreciation of the of the kitsch ethos and and finding yeah. finding joy in things that no one ever thought anyone would ever watch again. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, I'm, I'm deadly serious. Like it's 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 literally the the, the purest 
reaction of joy that I have to anything is laughing at how ridiculous yeah. something that no one ever assumed anyone will watch 40 years later, you know, is. Um, but I think, uh, Claude, you're hitting on something, and I think the... You're hitting on... It's, it's the Lovecraftian is where the appeal is, and what does that mean in today's day and age? I think it has everything to do with the... I think it has everything to do with the kind of cosmic alienation element. Um, I think that's what people respond to the most, and I, I know that's that's what I've responded to the most in my sort of um, in my my history with uh, uh, Lovecraft stories. And like I've said, like you know, Lovecraft was was absolutely my window into some other writers um, working in similar veins that I enjoy a lot more. But um, I'll still you know I'll still read a Lovecraft story, and to me the 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 value or the the compelling part of it that I get out of it is that that horror of facing up to the complete and, and as a human being like as a human social as a social ape which is who we are and we cannot escape it as a social ape whose whose body has evolved whose whose entire being has evolved to interrelate with other beings to the extent that we we project personalities onto things that do not have them all the time i think the yeah. the real horror element that lovecraft capably executes and that really draws people in is driving home the idea that the universe is absolutely under the control of things that have never even bothered to consider caring about something like you that you will never yeah. that you will never cross the mind of the thing that destroys you and that's a very different kind of horror than being the subject of than being the prey of a predator, which is another kind of like that's a primal horror. That's you know because we're, we were terrified of being devoured by leopards, and today the slasher movie is you know a, a, you know that's that's a that's a you are prey of a predator. What kind of it's a it's a very different kind of horror. It's a very different kind of facing up to doom that comes with the idea that completely impersonal forces will grind you to dust. And no one will remember yeah. that you ever lived, and that's I think a very twentieth century horror that carries through to the twenty first. And I, and I, to me, I think that's where a lot of the love. And of course, there, there's the surface elements of like yeah, gross tentacles and insane and monsters that drive yeah. you insane. You know, that's, that's fun too. But I, yeah. but I think um, that that would be the I guess the appeal that would be the to me the 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 kernel that attracts people to the yeah. Lovecraftian idea. The nugget there that he was trying to convey, maybe that, you know, is worth cutting through everything else in order to, to get to, and it's 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 actually such a hard horror to wrap your mind around mm -hmm. that it, it's almost never done completely right. Yeah, even yeah. by Lovecraft. Oh yeah, you absolutely. Know, the, yeah, he's, there's still people who are menaced and have to flee from something. You know, like it's still yeah, there. and yeah. the the whole like you know mixed race interlocutors is sort of a distraction honestly from right that right and, and narrative it, that he's actually trying to do right well but, it, but, that's, he's, that's... but he's trying to do the lost he's he's trying to do the miscegenation horror but i think it's less conscientious the 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 the, the cosmic horror i think I, I think he's trying to do the yeah. race horror but he's also touching upon yeah. the uh the thing that we're responding to a little more uh sort of almost right. not exactly incidentally but it is tied up together but i think yeah, yeah, yeah sorry <laughs> I, I i think it is tied up together more than than is comfortable at least for me okay. because you you can 
like I see what y'all are talking about that that kernel there of of basically being crushed by by a more powerful thing that is not cognizant that you are even human which I I mean strikes me as the 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 inverse of his own othering um you but you could all right. Do you know when I feel that horror? Mm-hmm. When I'm I'm I, I felt that when I was reading uh, Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, that cosmic horror is the the stringent nihilism hmm. of Nazi fascism. Right, right. Um, I. I Maybe that's just an effect of of living when we live, but I I don't need to imagine scaly monsters in order to get there. I just have to look at history. Yeah. Well, um, that was the future uh, for Lovecraft, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it's you know I I I, I think. I don't know. I guess living where where we live now, for me, it's not. It's not can't be fun. It's the reality. Yeah, it's it's less of yeah. a it's less of a a mental exercise. Um, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, and to be on and to be honest, that's why I suggested this episode. Oh wow! <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> that you know, I, I'm sitting here, you know, thinking, you know, I love Lovecraft, but then I'm watching TV and there's actually people with tiki torches yeah. on the streets right, and right. stuff, and it's like, yeah, this isn't so it fun it's anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's. It, and and to some degree, I feel like we. This is this is dark, but I think we are at a cultural moment that is very cognizant with with Lovecraft's own. It's mm-hmm. it, very cognate with mm-hmm. with Lovecraft's own. Yeah, and that's what makes this not something that I would revisit for um, for affective purposes. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting from a kind of cultural studies perspective. Yeah, because one of the things that that you know I I, I didn't get a chance to talk about, and I'm not going to belabor the point, but so much of his writing about you know Ben, I I, I think you you aptly point to the way his misogyny finds outlet in these kinds of creatures that he creates. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and they're also extraordinarily excremental. Yes. And the the kinds of people who worship them are also broached in in excremental terms. And that gets at this kind of psychology of disgust, which is c- connected to racism, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to othering. We find the other disgusting and displace all of our own, you know, disgusting tendencies onto that other. That's kind of the root back there. There's something fascinating about this from a a, a sort of cultural study standpoint but i don't know it's just not fun for me yeah but i'm not trying to say it's it can't be fun for anybody <laughs> well i think i think it, it's I just think, you know it, it, I, yeah. I think you hit upon it there club by by saying like it's not something that you would go to for effective purposes and i, right, and I think that right. ties into sort of the broader you know that's what we talk about on the cannonball all the time is that yeah um, yeah you know we we were sort of it, 
you know, what Bloom was attempting to do and what I think we were doing a lot better than Bloom, honestly. I'm going to toot our own horn and say we have a much <laughs> better so. understanding of everything than that guy, that that desiccated old husk of a man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but but that is, that is to say that the kind of um, reading for the effective purpose, if you're going to read something for the purpose of getting a thrill or an enjoyment or if there's some compelling reason, you know, then that's how. Then that's why you're going to read it. If, and if it doesn't work for you that yeah. way, it doesn't work for you that way. And that's you know, right. that, that and that's all there is to it. You know, it's it's the kind of thing like I, I, I kind of feel similarly about the fact that I I do enjoy the stories of uh, Robert E. Howard, right? Conan the Barbarian stories. I think they're absolutely yeah. terrific as stories. I think I enjoy the affect I experience as I read them. He didn't go as out of his way to be as racist as H.P. Lovecraft, but it's still really damn racist a lot of the time because he always, always, always relies on Orientalist depictions of non-Western peoples. He always, always, always leans on racist stereotypes of physiognomy for his descriptions of characters. It's just there. Yeah. Um, But, oh, sorry. I I think this... No, and I I just want to say that this is something that all of the pulp writers that I've read they were drawing on the trash science of the time to write the trash literature. <laughs> right, right, and that includes the trash race you know, science. I, I You're absolutely, absolutely right. Ad- I absolutely adore um, Princess of Mars, the the, the Barsoom series, the, yeah. John Carter and the Savage Apes yeah, of Mars. Yeah. And it's all, I mean, it's based on a piece of science that was that was provably wrong a hundred years before it was written. <laughs> right, right. But, it, you know, you know the, the canals of Mars and, and all that. Yeah. And, you know, it was complete trash. But you're right, but, it, but it's a, but it's a transporting affect though. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, yes. I'm with you. Yeah. But I, I yeah, I think this was, fellas, this was a, a wonderful conversation. I, I really think, Claude, thank you so much for, um, I guess, staking out the, uh, the, the anti-Lovecraft poll here and, well, I, I feel like if any episode gets me death threats, it's probably going to be this one. <laughs> well, I will happily lay down my life to protect you, Claude. You are a national treasure, and I will hear I will hear nothing, uh, no ill words about you. And the same goes for you, Ben. Totally. This has been marvelous. I, I, oh, I, I want to tell you, the audience, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how much Agora is built around personalities, but um, <laughs> but I've been a, a correspondent via social media and email with uh, with Ben for uh, for years now, and this was the first time we actually had a live conversation. And yes, Ben, yes. you are a tremendous conversationalist and a and a just a stupendous interlocutor. And I I appreciate you, you helping us cover this uh, this contentious and weird territory. Um, of, yes. of Lovecraft and uh, and his legacy, man. This is this has been tremendous. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a great admirer of the Cannonball and uh, other shows, uh, and you know, so uh, this is great for me too. And I'm Claude. I'm really glad you were willing to uh, <laughs> serve your role for this one because well, I think no, it's, I d- it contributed obviously to making I, this a great show. I loved it. No, because I really was curious. You had this, the, this. You know, we've kind of been. Uh, I guess before we went on air, you were you were playing with this idea of kitchen camp, and I, I think you articulated that you know extraordinarily well. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And and I understand your position. I, and I guess that's what it comes down to. I guess this is what Daniel was trying to say: is that sometimes 
the aesthetic is personal mm-hmm. and yeah. I, I'm not trying to blast yours. I'm just saying it's not mine. Uh, but totally fair. <laughs> I have enjoyed one of my favorite books is Malloy by Samuel Beckett. The first hundred pages of which are an unindented paragraph. Um, <laughs> that's one of the best things I've ever read in my entire life. I don't yeah. expect anyone to mm-hmm. get behind that one. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, but yeah, thank you guys both so much. Uh, this was uh, a whole lot of fun. And uh, if anyone's still listening at this point, go read Lovecraft or don't. Yeah. yeah. But but what you do have to do is listen to uh, uh, Wittenberg de Westphalia uh, by our good friend Ben Jacobs here, uh, our, our Agora uh, sister show. Um, it's absolutely tremendous. Anyone who is at all interested in history, you'll absolutely love it. Because Ben's passion for the topic of history in general and, and his commitment to doing it right is just truly phenomenal and honestly a lot rarer than you might think in the podcast world. Um, so please check out Wittenberg to Westphalia. Thank you very much. And uh, just a quick note, if you're interested in what my favorite kitschy movie is, oh, yeah. it is Bruce Lee, Strikes, Bruce Lee Strikes Back from the Grave. Check it out. It's <laughs> fantastic. I absolutely will. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, I guess I'll, uh, I'll 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 sign us off here, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. This has been the the Cannonball Special Agoraphobia episode, and uh, we'll see y'all next time. Good night, everybody. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.